been covering uh, this month, this season of Advent here at Grace Fellowship. If you uh, if you would like to know where to find more of those videos, uh, they come from a group called The Bible Project. They have one for every book in the Bible, and they also cover several themes, just like the one we watched called The Messiah. Uh, it's a great group and a great resource. Uh, but we have been looking at this story, the story of, uh, of God's redemption, uh, the story of God's kingdom come. But the question kind of begs the question is why? Why is it so important that we cover this story? Why do we need to know the story? Why zoom out from the birth of this baby in Bethlehem at Christmas, at what we celebrate at Christmas, to the story of the whole Bible. And the reason that I think it's important that we know this story is because it reminds us of what's important. Uh, imagine, God forbid this should ever happen, but I want you imagine that uh, we suffer, our house suffers a devastating house fire. All of the people are okay, everybody's fine, but our house is is absolutely ruined. And because you love me and because you're a good neighbor, uh, you're, you're going to come over and you're going to want to help. And so as you walk in the door, you can just see all of the, all of the damage, how the, uh, you can see the, the pipes and the wiring through the walls that have been burned away. There are gaping holes in the floor. Um, the, the fridge has fallen over and all of its contents spilled onto the floor. Everything's just an absolute wreck. The smell is horrendous. And you find me in one of the back bedrooms changing light bulbs. What would you say to me? Maybe after you called mental health. What would you, what would you say to me as you found me there in the carnage of my house changing light bulbs? I hope you would say something to the effect of, Kevin, that's not really the most important thing. There's lots of truth in the Bible. In fact, the whole Bible is true. There's lots of doctrine in the Bible that is rightly applied to our lives. But if we don't understand the story, if we don't understand the whole thing, then it becomes very hard for us, for us to understand what is most important. And the story of redemption tells us that at the center of the story, Jesus' restoring God's kingdom is really the point of the Bible. That our redemption is really the point of the Bible. Then everything else falls in line underneath that. So whatever, whatever we learn about angels and demons and the end times and how many days it took to make creation, all of that is subservient to the one message of the Bible that God is redeeming the world through Jesus Christ, His Son. I just want to revisit very quickly for you what we've seen so far uh, this month. That there are four acts to God. Four, four, that's number four, not this. This is five. There are four acts to God's story, right? The first is creation, act one. The second is the fall, right? And remember our definition for God's kingdom, that God's kingdom is wherever God's people live in God's place under his loving rule. And that's what we saw at creation. And then in the fall, what we see is that God's people reject God's rule, and so they are ejected from God's place. 
And then as we saw in the video, there's even promise built into that step that redemption follows hard on the on the heels of the fall. That there is someone who is coming, a son of Abraham, a son of David, who is going to redeem the fallen world. And we saw that last week, that Jesus is the one who fulfills those great promises. But Jesus, uh, Jesus adds a twist that his friends were not looking for. And you saw it also in that video that when Jesus dies, that was not what was expected. They did not expect Jesus to die and be buried. And so when we see the disciples early on that first Easter morning, they are in mourning. The women are going to the tomb to anoint a dead body. And what they find when they get there is totally unexpected. An empty tomb and a risen Savior. And what Jesus begins on that Easter morning is the process of restoring God's kingdom. Jesus begins something new that he will finish when he returns. And that is what brings us into Act 4, Kingdom Restored. This morning, we're going to read from Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. I think I had 3 through 5 on there. I'm actually going to start in verse 1. If you're using the uh, Bible there in the pew in front of you, uh, page 1041, page 1041 is where you will find us today. Revelation 21. This is the Apostle John, one of Jesus' early followers who wrote this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the words, the trustworthy and true words of our God shall never pass away. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we look at this last great and final act in your grand story of redemption, I pray that it wouldn't simply uh, tickle our curiosity, but that it would change us, that it would move into us and transform us, that we would see just how much is in store for the redeemed sons and daughters of God. May we look forward to the day when we are finally and fully made new Bless the reading and hearing of your preach of the preaching of your word this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A 
few of us in here may uh, may remember the original fixer upper. Not talk this is before Chip and Joe ever graced uh the small screen there was extreme makeover home edition, right? Before Chip there was Ty. Nicole you're nodding a little bit too eagerly there at the mention of Ty's name. All right, and so if you don't know the show, if you don't remember the show, what would happen is they would basically adopt a family uh, who had fallen on some hard circumstances and their, uh, whether that was disability or illness or some other, something other than that, and their home was in really rough shape. And they would send the family away, usually on a vacation to Disney World, and they would then fix up their home, right? They would transform uh, this broken down, um, neglected home into something amazing, right? They would take uh, they would take the old and they would make it new, right? And the anticipation as they're working on all these different projects, the anticipation kind of builds through the show until the family's standing there and there's a big tour bus in the way of the house and right they would all chant together move that bus right and the bus would roll out of the way everybody would go crazy at this amazing uh house before them right we love that show we watched it every week uh we like fixture upper as well there's there's something in us we love this idea of something old and neglected and broken, being repaired and restored and brought back to life. There's something in our hearts that resonates with that. And I think the reason that is, is because we were made for that. Because we are longing for our own restoration. We are longing for the day, not when, not when a bus or a screen will be moved out of the way, but when Jesus himself will tear the clouds apart and return and the holy city, the new Jerusalem will come down and replace this world, right? That's, that's what we're longing for. And so what we're going to see as we, uh, as we look in through today's sermon is that Jesus, what Jesus begins at his first coming, he will finish at his second. What Jesus begins in his first coming, he will finish at his second. The first thing I want to talk about, we'll spend most of our time here, is that restoration is the goal of redemption. Meaning that the reason we are saved, the reason God forgives sins, is so that his kingdom can be restored. And we'll talk about why that's important. And then we'll talk about the benefits of the new kingdom, how God's place will be restored, how his presence and rule will be restored, and how his people will finally be restored. But let's talk for a second about the restoration being the goal of the redemption. This may sound controversial to say, but just want to throw it out there, that that Jesus doesn't simply come to forgive sins. Jesus does not simply come to forgive sins, but he comes to restore what was lost in the garden. And that's traditionally where we stop short. It's kind of like, it's kind of like we round ourselves to third base and we stop thinking we've won the game. Right? Ask any child or maybe many of the children in the room, ask them, why did Jesus come? And you will hear them probably say, 
so that my sins could be forgiven and I could live forever with him in heaven. Now that's true. But can I say that it's not true enough? That it stops short of the whole truth. And the reason that's important, because if we, if we just stop at the fact that Jesus comes to forgive sins, which is important and necessary and critical, it is a key part of the gospel, but if we just stop there, then the good news is primarily not about Jesus, but about me. It's not about what God has done, but it's what about God has done for me and my needs. And then as soon as my needs are met, right, as soon as, as soon as sin is taken care of, well then I'm good, right? We've kind of checked that box and I can move on with the rest of my life. And the gospel and its impact on my life become increasingly irrelevant, right? Uh, I think this is why, by the way, that, um, that many of our teenagers, as they grow older, become dissatisfied with what they've heard as children, right? Why we begin to compartmentalize faith and we put it in a box over here, right? The Jesus part goes over here, but it doesn't really have any bearing on my farming or my firefighting or my nursing or my retirement, right? Because all I've ever heard is that Jesus came to forgive my sins. So I just want to, let's, let's think about that for a second, right? And then, if that's true, church beca- becomes kind of like a, a sin maintenance program, right? Well, I've been forgiven, uh, and forgiven people are supposed to come to church, so that's what we do. We come here every week, uh, every week, we do our little worship thing, and then we kind of move on to the rest of it, right? But the gospel that we hear on Sunday has no impact on the rest of the days, because again, for us, the gospel simply means that my sins have been forgiven, Right? So, why our children and why we end up compartmentalizing our faith? Because we've been told since we were young that when you trust Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And then when you die, you get to go live with him forever in heaven. The end. So... As the gospel uh, loses its relevance for the rest of my life, right? What happens then is, is our teenagers, which is when we usually begin to see this happening, right? This, it's already a period of separating anyway. But as our teenagers kind of begin to move apart from that, um, what happens is we're, they're unconsciously living out what we've been implicitly telling them the whole time, right? Check the Jesus box and then wait till you're dead. Well, there's a lot of room between you know, my youth when I checked the Jesus box, and hopefully there's, a lot, hopefully there's a lot of room between when I checked the Jesus box and my death. So that means, okay, well, uh, I guess the death of Jesus doesn't have any... The death and life of Jesus have nothing to do with the rest of my life, right? We're just going to hang out. Uh, we've checked the Jesus box. I'm going to be good and go to church, and I'm going to wait to die. Who wouldn't be excited by that? Right? And yet that's the gospel story we tell. When we, when we stop at third base and we don't get all the way home, we don't tell our children and we don't believe ourselves this beautiful story that God is in the process right now of redeeming a broken world. That all of the good things we see and all of the good things we do are a part of that redemption. 
They are not compart, Jesus is not compartmentalized over here just to the sin part of your life. Right? Jesus is also restoring the world. He is making it new and one day we'll finish the job. Restoration is the goal of redemption. Don't stop at third base. Keep moving. Keep moving around the bases. Jesus doesn't come only to forgive my sins, but to restore God's kingdom as a new creation. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he says this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says, whatever you're dealing with right now at this moment, whatever painful circumstances, however painful they may be, aren't even worth comparing. Can't even touch the glory that will be revealed. Right? Then he says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is waiting. Creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God because the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul says that We are not the only ones waiting for redemption. That creation itself, the whole universe, is eagerly waiting for redemption. You ever thought about trees and rocks in that way? That the creation around us is longing to be made new. Is longing for the sons and daughters of God to come into their full inheritance. Why? Because when the sons and daughters are free... From their bondage to sin and death and corruption, the creation itself will be set free. When we are saved fully and finally, creation itself will be saved fully and finally. So not only is humanity in bondage to sin and death, but so is creation. And when we are set free, creation will be set free as well. And then he describes it this way in verse 22. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Groaning in the pains of childbirth. That's how he describes what creation is doing right now. Right? That new life is coming forth. But we know that when new life is born, it is a painful process. All the earthquakes... The tsunamis, the firestorms, the hurricanes, creation is groaning. The world is groaning in waiting for redemption. And not just creation, verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who have the first uh Vestiges, we might say, of of Jesus' resurrection power living in us. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says that believers and the creation itself are longing for something better, longing to be restored and made new. That's the goal of the gospel. That's what Jesus has come to do. 
God forgives our sins so that we will be made new and enjoy His presence forever in the new creation. It's a whole package. It all comes together. So now, let's go to the end of the story. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 21, and let's see what this new creation, this kingdom restored, promises to be. To give you a little bit of context, so the, of course, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Revelation is at the end. It's the last book. This is the very end of the Bible. It's written by a man named John. John is in prison uh, because uh, he preached about Jesus, and the Roman emperor did not like that. Uh, the church is very likely under heavy Roman, Roman persecution at this point. And so John is in prison uh, when he receives the visions in this book from Jesus. And this is the last vision that John sees. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. Uh, God's place, the first benefit, the first consequence of the kingdom being restored, the first thing that happens is that God's place will be restored. What does John mean by new? This word he uses doesn't mean brand new. This is not new construction. Rather, it can be used to refer to renovation, restoration, that what is old, it, it bears a, maybe the best way to say it is this, it bears a resemblance to the old. This is not an altogether different place. It is that place made new, restored, new heaven, new earth. Uh, Jesus actually, in Matthew chapter 19, uses the word uh, regenerated. Uh, the word that we use to say born again. This is a creation that is born again, much like the people who will inhabit it are born again. So these new heavens and new earth will bear resemblance to the old, but they will be better. Which means, and this is important to say, that the new creation will be a physical place. Right? I remember as, as a kid uh, when, when a preacher would say something to the effect of, we're going to get to worship God forever. Yay! You know, because my view of worshiping God forever was we were going to sit, I get to sit in a hard pew and listen to some Yahoo talk forever? We'll stand up and sing songs and sit down and sing songs and then stand up again? Like, that's forever? Right? Or, kind of the hallmark version of, uh, of, of heaven, which is, you get a harp and two white wings and a white robe and you get to sit on clouds. This is not getting better. Right? Uh, this is just getting weird. Okay? Uh, what John sees is a real place. A physical place. And we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that we will have real bodies made new to enjoy this real place. My friend Sharon says that when, uh, when, when she gets to heaven, she's going to look like... I'm just drawing blank. Angelina Jolie, right? That that is what her restored body will look like, okay? I don't know what your new body will look like, but you will have one. And you will enjoy God's creation in a way that you have never been able to enjoy it before. The new heavens and the new earth. God's place is restored. He also calls it the holy city, the new Jerusalem, right? 
In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the place where God met with his people. It's where the temple was. It was God's city. And because it was God's city, it was holy. Except if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, that city was not holy at all. That was part of the problem. The people who lived in it repeatedly turned away from God. And eventually that city was destroyed. And when it was rebuilt, it was a shadow of its former self. Really a shell. And so... God shows John that there will be a new city, that this new heavens and new earth is the new Jerusalem. It is the city. They're they're one and the same. He calls it the holy city. And notice where the city comes from. It comes from God. He's the one who delivers it. In Genesis chapter 11, man strives to make a city for his own namesake, right? And he builds a tower and this city is called Babel. And this tower of Babel, man builds so he can make a name for himself and he can reach up to the heavens. Well, God frustrates the building of that city because it's built on human pride and every city like it. But this city is not built on human pride. It doesn't come from man making a name for himself. It comes down from heaven, uh, out of heaven from God. He is the one who restores his place, not us. We also see not only is God's place restored, but so is his presence and his rule. Look over at verse 22 of chapter 21. John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life." There's no temple in this new city, in this new heavens and new earth. Solomon's temple, just like Moses' tabernacle before that, were just shadows. They were like morning mist that dissipates as soon as the full sun comes up. They were places, physical locations where God's presence would meet with man. But in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no need. Because God's presence will fill it. There's no need for a special cordoned off place where only special people get to go. Because Jesus has finally and fully torn back the curtain and opened the way. And all who come in Jesus' name can enjoy God's full presence forever. There is no temple because God's presence is everywhere. His presence is restored. There will be no need for a physical meeting place. And his rule is restored because God is there. Sin and evil will not be. Nothing detestable or false will come into this glorious city. There's no deception. There's no sin. There's no evil. But the greatest blessing of all comes next. God's people will be restored, will be, not may be, not might be, God's People will be restored in God's presence. Look back at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is God's voice. 
saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. I want to read you some Old Testament passages just to, just to demonstrate how, uh, how long this blessing, this promise has come in fulfillment. From Leviticus 26, this would be, depending on how you count the time, about 1400 years before Jesus' first coming. Leviticus 26, God says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, roughly 900 years after Leviticus. God says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, my rule, within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel, just a little bit after Jeremiah, Ezekiel 37. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Zechariah 8, about 70 years after Ezekiel. God says, I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. This is the promise that God has been making really since Abraham. I will be a God to you. I will be God to you and your children after you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And we see that finally and fully when sin and death are done away with, God's people will finally be restored in God's presence. That that really is the culmination of the whole story. That God's people will enjoy God's presence without sin or deceit forever. So I just want to, I want to close by pointing out to you the bookends of the Bible. What we've, what we've seen, kind of draw, drawing this all together. The first two chapters of the Bible, the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, they start the story off by showing God's people living in God's harmony under God's rule in the Garden of Eden, God's place. Then in Genesis 3, God's enemies are introduced. Satan, sin, and death. Then, in Revelation chapter 20, the third to last chapter, God's enemies are finally dealt with and put away. Satan, sin, and death are put down in the third to last chapter of the Bible. And then, in the final two chapters... The story finishes not by taking us back 
to the garden, but by showing us an even better garden city. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. We haven't seen the tree of life since Genesis 2. The tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's the story of God's people. That's the story of how a little baby born to a working class mom in the little town of Bethlehem, in the barn in the little town of Bethlehem, would save the world and make it all new. So what? What do we do with that? If you're here this morning and you would say, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, then for you, I want you to embrace this story. I want you to realize the fullness of the salvation that you have been given. That this is the main thing. This is the most important thing. This is our identity. This is our story. This is what we bear witness to. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. When someone says, why do you have the hope that you have? You have it right there, a four-part story. Because this is what Jesus has done. You are not at the center of the story. Jesus is. He is the one who makes all things new. If you're not a believer, if you would say this morning, you know what, I don't know where I stand with Jesus. I don't know that I believe all these things. I just want to tell you that the message of Christianity is not a series of principles to be adopted. It's not a series of rules to follow. The message of Christianity is not a a set of principles to be adopted. It is a person to be received. It is a person to be received. And you can receive Him without cleaning up your act first. In fact, again, the message of Christianity is that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That Jesus came to save sinners. Those who are well have no need of a physician. And so this morning, I'm not calling you to a set of principles to follow, a new rule of life. If you want that, check out Buddhism or Islam. But if you want a person to receive, rather, if you want to be received by the God of all creation who has given himself blood, sweat, and tears so that you can enjoy his presence forever, then come to Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, it is hard for us to grasp. It is hard for us to wrap our imaginations around what will be the goodness that is to come. In fact, it's probably the reason that we fiddle around with so many things that are less good. Because we don't understand just how precious your salvation is. So Lord, would you once again astonish us by your grace that we are those who are lost and broken, but who have been reclaimed, bought, paid for, and made new. May that new story reinvigorate us and change us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship God through our giving.